Well, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 22 this morning. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can find a Bible there in the chairs or somewhere around you. That's page 977 in those Bibles that we've provided there. Uh, We look at the Bible a lot, so please open it and and be ready and and, um, willing to, uh, to explore this passage with us this morning. This passage in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, provides us with three metaphors regarding the church. There are three illustrations, three pictures, so we can learn about God's intention and purpose for the church. Now, if you've spent any time here at Redeemer at all, if you've listened to our sermons, if you've sat in on any of our classes, if you've just had coffee with us at Starbucks, you know that we care very, very deeply about the church. And we do because God cares very deeply about the church. We love the church. We love God's intention and purpose for the church. We understand from scripture that the gospel was given by God through the church and for the church. That Christ himself is the head of the church. He's the cornerstone of the church. He's the savior of the church, the sanctifier of the church. He loves her. He has nourished and cherished her. He has sacrificed himself for her. He reveals the manifold wisdom of God through the cosmos to her and through her. And it is as we are united in him under submission to the local church, you know, under submission to the leaders, the workers that God has placed in the church to tend and care for her, we grow in our knowledge and love for God as we faithfully serve and sacrifice ourselves for his body, his bride, his church. You know, it was my love for the church that compelled me to take my family from a place of, you know, security and assurance and a great church home to come up here to a place where I've never been to start Redeemer because I saw just how desperate the need was here for a healthy local church. It was Jim's love for the church that compelled him to invest so heavily in so many people and give away dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of books on the church. It was Caleb, his love for the church that compelled him to move up here when his wife was, was going to deliver a baby in three weeks and take a job and then work overtime and then work all of it, do all of his responsibilities here at the church because he loved the church and wanted to serve the church. And hopefully, you as members of Redeemer Church, you serve and sacrifice and invest yourselves in your brothers and sisters around you because you love the church. Were there tons and tons of examples that I could point to to reveal that here at Redeemer Church, we care very, very deeply about the church. And I got to be honest with you, my biggest heartbreaks in ministry have always come from a failure to love the church. I have seen many earnest and professing Christians go through life just kind of completely oblivious to the fact that God has a purpose and intention for them to be a part of a local congregation. And they just kind of go on autopilot, just completely ignorant, and I don't mean that in a bad way, ignorant of what God's purpose for the church is. They operate out of this godless cultural mindset of radical individualism. That Christianity is really just about me and Jesus. It's just a vertical relationship and nothing more and they're completely missing out on the blessings and the purifying effects that come from being in fellowship with other believers in Christ who are not like them. It grieves me when I see people as consumers come to the church only to take and never to give, only to be fed but never seeking to nourish, only demanding but never committing, and expecting the full ear and the undivided attention of the congregation when they come here, but never ever committing, never ever sacrificing, never ever pouring themselves out into others. It grieves me. Not because I'm expecting something in return from them, 
but because I know the blessings that they're missing out on. It grieves me to see us living, continuing to live in our sinful nature, to live as strangers and aliens to one another, separating, isolating, building walls of separation and division because I don't feel comfortable or I don't feel like I have time or any number of excuses that we can make not to invest ourselves in other people. We do. So often we don't see the beauty of how living by faith in Christ leads to honest and intimate communion, not just with God, but with his people, a people comprised of all walks and all ages and all backgrounds and all nations. So often we fail to see that loving Christ means loving his church. And so my prayer for this sermon Really, my prayer for the the series in Ephesians, my prayer for you this morning is that you would love the church as much as Christ loves the church. That you would see God's design for this community that Christ is building. That you would no longer live as strangers and aliens towards one another but be committed to deep and intimate fellowship, to grow and to serve and to love and to put the gospel on display through the covenant commitments that we have with each other. And so this morning in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, we're going to look at three metaphors that all give us this picture. They all basically tell us this one truth, and that is in Christ, we are being built together. In Christ, we are being built together. And so please read along in the text with me. It says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In this passage, we are going to see three pictures, three metaphors, three images to illustrate what it means to be a church, what it means to be built together in Christ. And and first we see that in Christ, we are fellow citizens of God's kingdom. Now, I guess technically there's actually a fourth picture because in verse 19, God tells us that in Christ we are no longer strangers and aliens, right? We are no longer separate from God. We are no longer separate from his people. The alienating and separating effects that sin has on our lives has been undone and Christ has brought us near. Now I wonder, have you ever considered just how antisocial sin really is? Sin is antisocial. I mean, think about it. In sin, I'm striving for independence. I'm striving for control. I'm striving to define my life the way that I want to. Sin is rebellion. It's rebellion against God. It's rebellion against others and the authority structures that God has placed in my life. When I sin, I want what I want. I want it how I want it, when I want it, where I want it, and whatever means that I want it in. Basically, I am living as if this is my world and I am God. And I will use any and all means necessary to get what I want, including you. Sin not only leads to alienation and separation from God, but it leads to alienation and separation from each other because I am using you to get what I want. It's not about you, it's about me. Even the people-pleasing extrovert who constantly surrounds himself with other people is using them for his own ends, for his own glory, for his own purposes, so that he doesn't feel lonely. But it's not about them, it's about him. Sin nature is selfish to the core. In our sin nature, we isolate ourselves. We hide. We build walls of protection and defense. I I don't want you to know my heart. I don't don't want you to know me. And so I'm going to separate and alienate and divide in pride and selfishness and exaltation. I am going to 
build myself up at the sake of your expense. And so I will belittle you. I will alienate you. I will crush you in order so I can feel good about myself. Sin is separating and alienating and dividing. And in our sin, we become bigots. We seek only to serve our own internal prejudices, those things that we are most comfortable with or most fond of. And we will belittle anything else. And so we war, we fight, we hate, and we divide. Sin is antisocial. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I illustrated this with a graph that never really appears very well here, though uh, Jen has done some work to help us out to be able to see things. Um, Here we see that sin not only leads to separation and alienation from God, see that vertical axis there, but also separation and alienation from each other. Living by faith in Christ leads not just to communion with God, but true community with his people. And so you see the downward diagonal arrow of sin, the upward diagonal arrow of faith. And the reality is that God and community are meant to go together. That's what it means to live by faith in Christ. Christianity is not about me and Jesus. We can't strip the idea of my right relationship with God from my right relationship with other people. If we do, we move over in that other, that top number two quadrant there, me and Jesus. But also, our relationships are not to be defined in autonomy from God. Because if we do, we begin to identify ourselves with a group of people or a particular relationship or some subculture, whatever, that is apart from God. And if that's the case, then it's godless. You see, they're meant to go together. God has intended for you to live in fellowship with him and fellowship with others. That's what it means to live by faith. And the further you get away from God or the further you get away from his his people, the more overt your sin becomes. And if you've never heard this before, I just need to tell you, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. All right, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we looked at that a while ago. It makes it clear that everyone, Every single person by their own nature was dead in their trespasses and sins. They were alienated from uh, or enslaved, I'm sorry, enslaved by the world, the devil, and their own sinful flesh. And the result of that is that they were condemned under God's just and holy wrath. That by nature, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What that means is everybody, and I mean everybody, was dead in their sin. Our sin isolated and alienated and separated us from God, but it also did to each other. Because if you continue in Ephesians chapter 2, we've been looking at verses 11 through 16, and we see that that sin not only affects my relationship, my right standing with God, but it also affects my relationships with you. That, I, that in our sin we are separated from Christ, that we are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Understand that to be God's community. We are strangers to the covenants of God's promise, and we are having no hope and without God in the world. That our sin has led us to be far off from God, but also far off from each other. That is what sin does. We, by nature, apart from Christ, were hopeless, separate, and without God. But when God saved us by his grace, not only did he redeem us, not only did he forgive us, not only did he make us alive together, with Christ, but also, and not only reconcile us to himself, but the blood of Christ brought us near to each other as well. Christ not only made peace vertically between us and God, but horizontally between us and each other. But he has made us one. That he has created in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And that one new man is the church. That he has broken down those dividing walls of hostility in his flesh. And he has reconciled us both to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The hostility between me and God and the hostility that would exist between each other. 
All of that is removed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Through him, we now have access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. That's where we left off in Ephesians 2. And so now we're starting to see the conclusion. Now we're starting to see the implication. Now we're starting to see what's the result of that for us. In verse 19, he says, so then, so then, therefore, this is the result. This is the implication. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer separate from God. You're no longer estranged from each other. And so why then would we continue to live as though we were? In replace of this negative metaphor of strangers and aliens, Paul gives three positive images. And the first one that he gives is of citizenship. And this is intended to display our new position before God and his people. Now, citizenship can be really hard for us to grasp because I'm venturing to say that most of us in this room, with the exception of maybe three, four, five, maybe five in this room, we're all born here. We're all born in the United States. And I'm also venturing to say that most of us have not spent enough time overseas for the tourist feeling to really kind of wear off. And so it's hard for us to grasp just the blessings that come from our citizenship. And to be a foreigner and an alien in a different country is very, very overwhelming. It's very fearful, right? You don't know what's going to happen. I've been to India two times. And the two times I went, I opted out of all of the tourist luxuries. I mean, we stayed in dirty, dirty hotel rooms with no AC. We lived, we stayed in people's homes in these shanties. We traveled in the packed sardine-like train cars. And poor, poor Joe, we were in the train car one time, and he, was, he couldn't move. He was stuck. And this guy with this hot chai pot rested it right on the back of his leg. And he can do anything. It's just like, ow, 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 ow. Nothing, right? His U.S. citizenship did not afford him the luxury of that man moving that pot off of his leg. It meant nothing, right? Us being that a U.S. citizenship was only, uh, being a U.S. citizen only was met with initial hostility and apprehension because we were Americans and they didn't really like Americans until they got to know us. Our citizenship didn't afford us the protections and the comforts and the pleasures of, that we experience here. We didn't have the same voice over there that we did here. We were aliens and strangers. We were separate. And the reality is we could have been thrown in jail. We could have been deported. We could have even been killed. And there was really, really little or nothing that our U.S. citizenship would afford us in this foreign land. Apart from the help of a translator, we had no way of communicating even for the most basic needs like food and clean water and shelter. Apart from the grace of another, we were utterly lost. You know, trips like that help you to realize the great privilege that comes with citizenship. That here, because I am a citizen, I can communicate with you. You're not scratching your head and wondering what I'm saying as I'm talking right now. Here we have the benefit of protection, but nobody's coming in and arresting us for meeting together and worshiping Christ. Here I know what sort of care and provision I am entitled to. I know what my rights are, and I get to participate in the democratic process. There's great and tremendous blessings that come from being a citizen here that I didn't have when I was in India. But what Paul describes here is better than any earthly residency. He says that in Christ, we are fellow citizens with the saints. That together, we are people of God's kingdom. The church is not the kingdom of God. The church is only a part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is his rule and his sovereign reign over all. Or as Graham Goldsworthy likes to say, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. 
That's what the kingdom of God is. But as fellow citizens, we are a part of that, that we are those who are governed by God, that Christ Jesus himself is our king. The saints are not, that it describes here, fellow citizens with the saints, the saints are not miracle-performing elite Christians that you should pray to. No, they are just God's people. They're those whom God has set apart for himself, those whom he has saved as a people of his own possession. Those who once belonged to the kingdom of darkness have now been delivered. They have now, in Christ, been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And so we have a new king. We have a new ruler through whom we are given every great and precious promise. In Christ, we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's tremendous blessing that comes with our citizenship as being a fellow citizen with the saints. And not only do we have the present benefit of forgiveness of sin, reconciliation to God, but we also have a glorious future. If you just read the biblical story, you know that this is not the end, that one day Christ the King will return and we will see him face to face and we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. And one day God's kingdom and his dwelling place will be with man, his redeemed people, and we will be gathered around his throne at the center of his kingdom with myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands upon thousands from every tongue and every tribe and every nation from every point in time and every point on the map and we will be gathered around in one loud voice one loud and glorious voice singing salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb that is the benefit that comes from our citizenship that we are fellow saints that we are citizens of God's kingdom that's the blessing that awaits for us now we share in it right now in part but one day it will be a glorious and tremendous future that is ours as we are citizens of God's kingdom this is not just one day This is not just wait for it now, tough, suck it up, just deal with it, and one day you'll be part of God's kingdom. No, if you are in Christ, you right now are a fellow citizen with the saints. So what does that mean for us? Christ's kingdom is not a kingdom of one. It is not a solitary kingdom. You are not its only resident. Through the salvation that God has given by his grace that you have received through faith, you have been delivered into his kingdom to live with his kingdom people, people from every tribe, every race, every background, every culture under his rule and under his blessing, not your own. The king must determine his community. Not your personal preferences, not your comfort level. The walls that you would build to separate, alienate, and divide in order to build and establish your own kingdom must be removed. You no longer hide behind them. To be a fellow citizen with the saints mean that you look past outward appearances and you develop relationships based upon God's intention and purposes for the church. You cannot live in that kingdom while you are trying to erect your own, to set your own agenda, to live your own life according to your rules. You aren't a citizen on specific dates or specific times or specific points on the calendar as long as something that is more important or greater doesn't conflict with that. There's no such thing as a part-time citizenship. You are a citizen. A citizen of God's kingdom seeks God's kingdom first. When we pray that prayer, Lord, your kingdom come. 
and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we are praying is, Lord, help me to let go of mine. Lord, help me to let go of these attempts to scrape together some foolish, flawed, earthly little kingdom that's only going to end. It's not eternal. Help me to give that up because I see just how great and how glorious your kingdom is, how it is far better, how it is worth more, that it is worthy of my life. It is immeasurably greater. And so I'm willing to give up that which I cannot keep to gain that which I will never lose. Friends, consider the blessings that come from being a fellow citizen with the saints in God's kingdom. And then let your lives and your relationships be a reflection of that kingdom. But not only are we fellow citizens of God's kingdom with the saints through Christ, but second, we are also members of God's household. I think here, you know, if we don't get citizenship right, we certainly don't get what it means to be a part of the family of God. We, we kind of interpret this as being a part of the household means like the servant, the guy that cleans the feet, right? We don't really see it as being a brother or sister, or a child of, of God. But not only do we receive new citizenship in Christ, we receive a new family. He says, listen, you're no longer strangers and aliens, And not only are you fellow citizens with the saints, but you are members of the household of God. And if we remember back to chapter 1, verse 5, Paul told us, listen guys, in love, in love, God predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he said, But God, because he is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. In chapter 2, verse 18, he says that through Christ, we now have access to our heavenly Father through the Holy Spirit. In chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we we are told that therefore we are to be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Through trust in the death and resurrection of Christ, not only were we transferred into God's kingdom, but we were lovingly adopted into God's family, that he is our father and we are his beloved children. You know, so often, I think that if we were to go around and ask each other, what does it mean to have a relationship with God the Father? What does it mean to be saved? More often than not, we would use legal terminology. We would speak of redemption or forgiveness, or justification, or propitiation. Now, if you don't understand those words, I'll just explain them. Basically, they all have a legal background, right? A legal standing is changed. We, we speak about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf, that he satisfies the just and holy wrath of God towards my sin. We view God at that point as a just and righteous judge whom Christ pays the penalty. He pays the ransom that our sin deserves. He delivers us, and as a result of that, we are reconciled to God. And not only that, but when God, when, when Christ does that, that we, our, our sin is placed upon Christ, And we receive Christ's righteousness so that when the judge looks at me, he says, you're acquitted because he sees the goodness and righteousness of Christ on my behalf. And that's good. That's right. That is an accurate description of what redemption in Christ, of what salvation really is. But so often it can lead to a very insufficient view of, of God, that we end up viewing God as this holy and wrathful judge. 
And Christ's sacrifice, you know, kind of comes in and it, it achieves its purposes, but we, it just allows us in the door. We, at that point, become that unworthy servant who is scraping the feces off of people's feet, but we are not loved. We experience nor warmth or appreciation or affection because God, we have this anemic view of God that he is cold and distant and some calculated and right and true judge, but nothing more. Now that could have been as far as it went, right? That could have been how God revealed himself. Basically, salvation is achieved, right? Your sins are covered. God's wrath is satisfied. It could have ended right there, but it doesn't. The revelation of God continues. Not only is he this holy and righteous judge, but he is also a loving father who sacrificed that which was most dear to him so that you could become his children. In love, he adopted you into his family. He didn't have to do that. In love, he has brought you near. God is not some cold and distant and calculating God. He is an intimate father who loves you. He has bestowed the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness upon you. Our positional change is more than legal standing. It is overflowing with God's adopting love. And in that process, we not only received a new father, but we received a new family. All those who have turned away from their sin and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin and the hope of eternal life, they are your brothers and sisters. Regardless of their age or shape or color or status or language or baggage or IQ. Nothing separates that. You don't get to pick and choose your spiritual family any more than you get to pick and choose your biological one. Now, unless you're here as an only child... I'm sure you've all experienced times where you just wish that mom and dad would just send your siblings off to go live with grandma and grandpa indefinitely, right? But it never happened. They're your family. And like it or not, our sovereign and wise father has lovingly determined who our family would be. And family is family. And because... My father sacrificed so much for them. Because he loved them so much, I will sacrifice for them and love them because that's what God did for me. Because my father showed them immeasurable grace and mercy and forgave them of this unbelievable debt that stood against them just as he has done to me, then I will extend mercy and grace and forgiveness to them. Because my father has been faithful and kept his covenant promises to them just as he has to me, I too will be faithful to keep my covenant promises to them. Because that's what it means to be a member of the household of God. That I, I want to love my brothers and sisters the way that my father loves my brothers and sisters because he loved me that way. I don't have to look to them to gain all of that stuff because I've already received it in infinite measure in him. My father supplies for my every need, so I don't need to look to my brothers and sisters to give me stuff. And I don't have to fight or war with them about it because I know that my father will give me everything I need. And so I love them. And I extend myself towards them. And I do what is necessary for the good of the family. Now let me ask you a question. How are you loving your family? How are you doing with this? 
Obviously, you know, if your family, if your physical, biological family, if they're in Christ, that includes them too. But beyond that, your spiritual family that God has given you, how are you loving them? How are you extending towards them? When you look around this room, be really uncomfortable right now and can I do it? Go like this. All right? Do you see brothers and sisters? Or do you see strangers and aliens? Or worse yet, you see enemies and adversaries. Are you seeking peace and reconciliation with your family? Or are you like some selfish little brat screaming in your heart and running off to your room and locking the door behind you? Or worse, are you like the prodigal who hated your family and stole from your father and took all of the blessings to run off to a faraway land and squander the blessings and the grace and the love that he has given you? Family, if you are in Christ, then God has taken each of us, former strangers and aliens, formerly divided and filled with hostility, and he's made us brothers and sisters in Christ. God being our father, in love he has adopted us into his family that we might live together as a family. And so, How do you need to respond in order to pursue, to live in this loving intimacy of that family? What does that look like for you today? So in Christ, we are joined together as fellow citizens of God's kingdom, and we are members of his household. We are family. But then in verses 20 through 22, we see this third and final image that God uses to describe the church. He says that in Christ, we are being built together into a holy temple, into a dwelling place for God. Verse 19, we saw we're no longer strangers and aliens. Instead, we are fellow citizens. We are family. And that, starting in verse 20, this church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Christ, together, we are being built into a dwelling place for God. And in former times, God's dwelling place with man was a physical temple in Jerusalem. And that physical temple was a symbol of God's promise of his presence with his people. But you know, even when Solomon dedicated the temple, he knew that it was only a symbol and wasn't a reality. That this temple made with hands was was too small for God. That God could not be contained by it. And so with the coming of Christ, what we see is there's this dismantlement of this temple made with hands. And in its place, God is beginning through Christ to build a temple within each of us. Each of us being bricks, each of us being stones, being built together into this holy dwelling place for God. The man-made temple was destroyed and the spiritual temple is being erected in each of our hearts as God draws us together, as God is working to build this temple. And God is actively at work. I mean, we've seen this so much in Ephesians, that God the Father has elected us, he has adopted us, that he has redeemed us, that he has forgiven us, that he has made us alive together with Christ. We see God the Son working to make us both one, to create in himself one new man in place of the two, and to reconcile us both to God, destroying the hostility. And here we see that God the Spirit is at work, that he has given us access to the Father through himself and is now building us into a dwelling place for God by uniting us and by living within each and every heart. God is building that temple. 
all of those who have turned away from their sin and towards God through faith in Jesus Christ have received the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That Holy Spirit is uniting us, is giving us access to the Father because he has taken up residency in each of us and is building us, the church, together into this holy temple in the Lord, into God's dwelling place. And this doesn't happen at random. He is very methodical and intentional and purposeful in the way that he is accomplishing that building. God uses materials in his glorious construction process. And the first material that we see is that he is building upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. If you don't know what an apostle is, an apostle is someone who is commissioned by Christ himself to carry Christ's message of peace to the world. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write God's words on behalf of God. A prophet, if we define it most broadly, is someone who speaks on behalf of God. Now, some people tend to look at this and they question whether or not Paul was speaking of the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament prophets. Honestly, I think both are in view here. And this is why. Because the New Testament apostles and prophets were utterly dependent upon the Old Testament prophets for their message. Their message was never, ever, ever, ever divorced from the Old Testament prophets. When they went in from place to place, what did they do? They reasoned, they preached, they taught from the Old Testament scriptures. So I see no reason to divide over word order on this. It doesn't really matter. And neither is Paul arguing for the continuation of these particular roles or prophetic gifts. I mean, the whole point here is that the church is built upon God's revealed message through these men to establish and ground his people. What he's saying here is the church is founded upon the word of God. What matters is their message. That this is the word of God and therefore we are to build our lives together upon it. And the center of that message is Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say that Christ himself is the cornerstone. He uses images given by, ironically enough, Old Testament prophets to say that Jesus fulfilled the promises and predictions of of Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28 and Zechariah 10. In those days... They didn't have all the modern conveniences in building houses like we have today. They used stones. And and to build a foundation, the cornerstone was the most important part of that building. You see, a cornerstone marked the beginning of the building. The cornerstone set the line and the direction that the building would take. The cornerstone determined the structural integrity, the soundness, and the safety of that building. And the cornerstone also established the size that the building would be. Everything about that building was tied to, related to, and determined by the cornerstone. And if you think about that, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church He is her one foundation. Jesus Christ marked the beginning of the church. Jesus Christ set the line and the direction that the building, the church would take. Jesus Christ determined the structural integrity, the soundness, and the safety of that church. And and Jesus Christ also established the size that the church would be. The church, or I should say a church, that is built upon anything less, ceases to be a church. You students, you may walk around your campus and you see all of these ornate buildings. A building is not a church. Church is founded upon Jesus Christ. A building is just a building, no matter how decorative it might be. You might go through your hometown and same thing, you're walking around from church to church, but it's not really a church, it's just a building. Why? Because they have long ago rejected the cornerstone. They are not founded upon Jesus Christ. For the church to be the glorious dwelling place of God, she must be built upon Christ as he has faithfully been revealed in God's word. 
And so the Holy Spirit is the building, or he's building the church. She's founded upon the message of God. Its central focus is Christ. And that dwelling place has materials. Together, we are that material. It says we are being built together. We are being joined together. Notice that we don't build it. The Holy Spirit builds it. We are the materials that are being built together into this holy temple, this dwelling place for God. Now, the apostle Peter likens us to stones, to living stones. He says in in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, that as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Like living stones, we are being joined together into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, I I once heard a pastor describe the stone building process this way. Apparently, he had a family friend that lived in Jerusalem, lived in a very, very old home. And and at one point, this family friend had a, a wall, an ancient wall in his home that needed to be repaired. And given the construction of the home, given the age of the home, and uh, everything that goes into that, he decided to forego all the modern conveniences and contact a master stone cutter. And this master stone cutter, he didn't use mortar, he didn't use bricks. All he used was a hammer and chisels. A couple of days later, this homeowner's there and, and this big, huge pile of freshly quarried stone was dumped into his yard. They were huge hunks of rock, all jagged, all rough, of of big sizes, little sizes, none of them fitting together. Basically, at that point, when he looks at that, he looks at the wall, this is a useless pile of rock. You can't do anything. I'm not going to be able to take these rocks and put them up on this wall. But then the stonecutter came, and he would take one of the rocks, and he would put it down in front of him. And he would look at the wall, and he would study it. And then we would look at the rock. He would study that. And then he'd begin to chisel away. And he kept repeating this process. He would look at the wall, study it. He would look at the rock, he would chisel. He would look at the wall, look at the rock, chisel. And by the time that he was done, all of the jagged edges were removed and there right in front of him was this perfect rectangular stone. A stone so perfect that when he picked that stone up and placed it upon the wall, it slid in so smoothly that you couldn't even take a putty knife and stick it between the rocks. The seams were just that tight. And you know, that is what the Lord is doing with us. As the master builder, he is taking the rough and jagged stones from every race, from every background, from every walk, from every age, from every gifting, from every weakness, from every sin struggle, and he is forming us and fitting us together with the chisel of relationships and circumstances and hardships and blessings so that when he is finished, we are joined together into a pure and holy and perfected dwelling place for God. Each stone fitting exactly where it is supposed to be and with whom it is designed to be next to. He is building the church. He is joining our lives together so that through the church, we might be formed and fitted and perfected into this glorious and holy temple, this dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And if you notice that work there is not done. We are being built together. We are being joined together. It's not a completed work. So if you're here expecting some perfect church, good luck with that. We'll see it one day, but it's not yet. Here, we're filled with sinners. We're filled with jagged rocks that scrape off to one another. But as we commit to being joined together, as we commit ourselves to being built together by the Holy Spirit, that hammer blow by hammer blow, by stroke by stroke, little by little, stone by stone, we are being built into a holy temple in the Lord. 
Now, just in case you're wondering or thinking to yourself that Paul is only speaking about the universal church here and not the local church, that God is now uniting Jew and Gentile together and he's in the process of building this great and glorious future, eternal, heavenly, perfected people of God, but we're not there yet. This is the here and now. That's not then. I want you to look very, very closely at verse 22. Because what Paul does here is the same thing that he did back in chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. That he goes from big picture. He goes from the general. He goes from presenting a theological idea. And then he gets very personal and specific. Paul is not speaking to Gentiles only. He's speaking to members of the local church in Ephesus. If you look at verse 19, Paul says, You Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you Gentiles are fellow citizens. You Gentiles are members of the household of God. That together we, Jew and Gentile, are being joined together into a holy temple in the Lord. But then in verse 22, he says, In him, you also, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now why? Why would he say that if he was only referring to Gentiles being a part of the universal church? That is beyond redundant, okay? And why would he add that all-important word also? What are you going to add at that point? Unless, unless, of course, he's not talking about Gentiles and Jews coming together as the universal church, but as members of of the local church saying, listen, guys, I'm being very specific and very personal. This is not some abstract idea that you together also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You, saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You, you also... Members of the local church in Ephesus, comprised of more than likely Jew and Gentile, even there, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God. And if he's speaking to the local church, then he can also say, listen, you, Redeemer Church, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, guys, I... I hope that you find this to be a tremendous blessing. As Paul is not speaking of something that is out there, that is distant, that is future, that is heavenly. He's speaking right here and right now. It's not simply God's ultimate goal to eventually perfect a people for himself one day after Jesus comes back. It is God's intention that today and every day that he is building us together into a local church, a dwelling place for God. He is not just talking about the church universal, invisible, and eternal, but present, visible, and local as well. So be encouraged by this. What this means for us is that we are not on our own. We're not pointlessly trying to make our way in the dark all by ourselves. The Redeemer Church, God has has himself united us together and that he is actively working to build us into a dwelling place for God. That you are kingdom citizens. That together we are family and together we are this dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That here, he is here. He is in us. He is with us. What a blessing then that he inhabits us. He's working right here and right now in our relationships, the relationships that we have with each other to form and to purify us, to display his glory in this church. He's using my relationships with you and your relationships with me to mold us, to form us, to build us together into this dwelling place for himself. And through us, through our unity, through our lives being transformed, through our proclamation of the gospel, he is making his glory known. He is putting the gospel on display in us in the midst of a hopeless and helpless, dark and sinful world. My friends, what a blessing. 
What a privilege that we have in the local church. This is why we love the church. And this is why I pray that you would love the church. So what difference does it make? How should this passage change our lives? I mean, we need to go beyond just thinking rightly about the church. We need to go beyond our hearts being impressed by the word coming to bear as the spirit is working in us. We need to actually respond. We need to do something. Well, first of all, some of you might be here and this passage is completely foreign to you. You never really thought about this at all. You don't know what it means to be a citizen, a family member, or a living stone because you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, my friend, I just want to encourage you that you do not have to live as a stranger or an alien, that God himself has welcomed you in Christ for his glory, that he has welcomed you to be a part of his kingdom, to be a part of his family, to be a living stone together with him. And so if you are here and that is you, talk to someone. Talk to someone around you. Ask, go up to them and ask, are you a member of Redeemer Church? If so, can I talk to you? And if that's weird for you at all, you know, you come talk to me. I might be a little intimidating. I don't know. I'm trying not to be. But talk to someone, okay? We want to answer your questions. For all of us who are trusting in Jesus, we have to understand that this passage completely obliterates the notion of an individual Christian. The Bible is undeniably corporate. There is no such thing as simply going through life with me and Jesus. God did not call you to be a lone ranger Christian, but to live in community as God defines it. And for some of you, that means seeking membership in a local church. You need to be where you are. God did not form you as a living stone to hop around from wall to wall or to be an occasional brick or stone on the wall only to be removed. And I'm saying this, and I know that some of you have been hurt by the church. And I'm sorry for that. We're sinners and we're going to do that. But, but don't let that keep you from obeying this call, this command, that you are meant to be a part of the church, that God is forming you as a living stone, not to sit beside the wall indefinitely, but to be a part of it, to be a means of using your giftings and your calling and the work that God has done in you to help shape and mold other people, to pour yourself out for the good of other people, and for God's glory that you might find your soul's true satisfaction in him. Stop comparing yourself to other stones on the wall. God has created you uniquely. He is forming you uniquely to be uniquely a part of the wall in exactly the place where he wants you. So don't lament your circumstances or situations. Students, don't look at yourself as saying, you know what, I'm boy, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm, mem- I'm a member of my church back home and I, I'm really only here for school and I travel a lot. You know, I kind of go back home a lot and so I'm not always here. And so maybe I just need to come and kind of attend and participate but not really get involved. Well, to you, God says you need to be where you are. If you spend nine months out of the year here, where should your church membership be? It should be right here. If you're a visitor here, The same thing applies to you. I don't want to sort of isolate students away from everyone else. I mean, the reality is we're called to be a part of that wall. We're called to be a fellow citizen with the saints. We're called to be an active participant in God's family in a local organized fashion. And so what does that look like for you? What is God calling you to? I really want you guys to consider that. And we want to be a blessing to you. If we can be that church for you, we want to do that. If we're not, maybe you're just like, you know, I don't know. Chet preaches way too long. I don't like that. Uh, Tough. Um, (laughs) But I do want to help you think about what a healthy church is. So over on the welcome table, we have these books called What is a Healthy Church? That is yours free for attending this morning. There's no obligation to buy. There's no obligation to return. We're not signing you up for anything by taking a book. So please take one and read it and think very carefully about God's purposes in the church and what is a good church for you to be a part of. 
Okay, think deeply about that. Please, one per family unit, whatever that is, but take it, please. We'll get more. It's okay. Just on your way out. If you're thinking, man, you know what? This is right, and I need to be a part of a church, and I've kind of been dabbling around with this for quite a while, or maybe this is your first time, and you're like, yeah, sign me up. Well, then uh, we have a Membership Matters class starting September 22nd, which is a Sunday. It's going to be at 8.30 a.m. in one of our rooms upstairs. It's going to go for four weeks. You can get through, kind of figure out who we are, what we're about, what we believe, how we live, how we're committing to live together. That's the first step in our membership process. So if that's interesting to you, there's also a sign-up sheet at the welcome table. But here's the thing, guys. Whatever the Lord is leading you to, invest yourself in his kingdom, his family, and his dwelling place. Do not continue to live as strangers and aliens. For others here, that might mean pursuing reconciliation, that there's been this strife and animosity between you and someone else in the body. And if that's the case, know that God is using this circumstance and this situation, no matter how uncomfortable it might be in your life, as a chisel to shape and form and grow not just you, but the other person and everyone else that's involved. Reconciliation is a beautiful thing. Sure, it's hard. Sure, it takes time. I mean, if you're a stone being whacked with a chisel, it's not comfortable, but it's worth it. So for the glory of God, pursue reconciliation. Heed Paul's warning from Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, where he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so if there is this division, if there is hostility, please take time to deal with it. Do not run and hide. Do not avoid. Do not turn and attack. Reconcile. God is providentially using this circumstance for your good and for his glory. For some, applying this text means letting go of the personal prejudices that you have against other people. Now, no one goes around and just waves the banner or the flag of their personal preferences, their prejudices against other people. Uh, if you're a member of KKK, then we, we need to talk because we need to talk, okay? Um, but we don't have any of that here. Um, <clears throat> and we can do this in a lot of little ways. God's kingdom, God's family, his dwelling place is comprised of people from every walk of life. And so for me to be a part of it means that I don't get to pick and choose. I I don't get to define my community the way that I would like to define it. God does that. To show favoritism in whatever way, whether it be like, you know, I'm only willing to talk with people that are within two years of my age, or I'm only willing to invest myself in people that are the same color as I am, or that speak you know, my language or that, you know, basically earn the same or equivalent amount of money of me or my family, but I'm not willing to invest myself in the marginalized and all that, you need to understand right here and right now, showing favoritism, showing partiality is a denial of the gospel. It is a denial of the gospel. It is evidencing in your life that you do not believe what you profess. And so, as a fellow citizen, I am called to love my fellow citizens. As a child of God, I am called to love God's children. As a living stone, I am to be formed and placed by whoever the master builder has seen fit to place me beside. And so if you are tempted to reject others based upon your selfish preferences, then you need to repent and believe the gospel. And for all of us, invest. Just invest. Invest yourself in this priority. Make every effort to pursue fellowship with your brothers and sisters here at Redeemer. Now, that may mean that you may need to intentionally pursue relationships with people that you're kind of uncomfortable around. For some of you, that might mean that you just need to talk and engage more with the people in your community group. 
This may mean that you need to take membership more seriously and not be gone so much. You may need to join a life transformation group. You may need to adjust your schedule so that you can serve more and pour yourself out for the sake of others. Friends, understand that local church membership is not passive, it's active. So how is God calling you to invest yourself in the lives of others? Because in Christ, we are being built together into citizens of God's kingdom. We are adopted into God's loving family. We are being joined together as living stones into God's dwelling place. Friends, this is a tremendous blessing. And I hope you find it to be that. Let's be the church together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder of what you are doing, what your purpose is for the church. God, forgive us for the ways that we isolate and we alienate, we divide and, and seek to live life independent from other people. Lord, help us to have the same heart and the same passion that you have for your people and that we would longingly serve as fellow citizens of your kingdom, that we would love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would would be molded and formed and be used to mold and form those around us as we are being built up as living stones into your dwelling place. Father, I pray that, that this would change the way we think about the church and that we would love the church as Christ does. It's in his name I pray, amen.